Presidential Medal of Freedom, who's received it, who should receive it, and maybe a couple who shouldn't. I am 2023 U.S. Champion Clay Russell. I'm Honeydeuce Enthusiast Christine Sear. And I'm, fresh from my defeat at Wimbledon, Brian Tuft. Mm, you know what? You fought valiantly, though, Brian. We're all proud it's of you. It's a tough crowd. Thank you. Yeah. I'm proud of myself. <laughs> you, you can't win them all. I really, I didn't even go to win. I just went to touch some grass. Listeners, if you can't tell, <laughs> we are fresh from our Limbaugh offsite. Every year, Brian and Christine humor me and allow me to publicly freak out when I watch professional tennis players play up close. And I just wanted to extend to my co-hosts, thank you for allowing me to, to be weird for that day. I, I thought it was really fun this year. It was really fun. The energy was very good. And I have to say, I went yeah. back a few days later with my husband who knows even less about tennis than I do. And the experience of being at the U.S. Open without, as I like to call it, a tennis Sherpa like Clay Russell. Like none of these none of these lesser matches meant anything to me because I didn't have Clay giving me each player's entire life story. Um, <laughs> a thousand bits of trivia in between each point. Exactly. Yeah. I just watched Andy Murray, walked around a little, and then tragically only had daytime tickets, so I didn't get to see Serena's last match. I did sit at home alone and cried when she lost, which was surprising to me. I was never the biggest Serena fan, I was fan, just going to say, you're kind of a, a... You're also not a very emotional person, <laughs> so... Been friends with when you, you like, for... My eyes are rusting. You know what got me, though, was that it wasn't Serena, it was Venus, because oh. Venus was always the cooler older sister. And she shouted her out. Just like, yeah. She, like, Venus always had, like, the steel. She was the leader. She was the one to stay strong. And when Serena said, without Venus, there'd be no Serena. And it cut to Venus, and she's sobbing. And I was like, this is too much. I sent that video to my sister and was like, this is how we talk about each other after three glasses of wine. <laughs> Aw. <laughs> no, so Brian and his sister are all or nothing. They're either like hyping each other up or like not talking for six weeks over the most minor infractions. My sister has always said that I'm the realest person because I compliment her behind her back and I talk shit about her to her face. That's what you want. Okay, hold on though. <laughs> uh, if Venus is clearly the adult of the two, who is the adult of you and your sister? I am. Okay. Uh, she's starting to give you a run for her money though. <laughs> Well, no, just like Serena, she's starting to make more money than me. Let's not, <laughs> let's not get confused. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Clay, I was actually glad to go with you to the U.S. Open because the U.S. Open is the one time of year where it's easier for me as a Queens resident to get to a big event than anyone else in New York. And it is an excuse to drink Ray Goose vodka before noon and no one bats an eyelash. In fact, their mm -hmm. only question is, do you want that on the rocks or do you want the new frozen one? And I think that's beautiful. I got to say, frozen's <laughs> better than on the rocks, right? 
Yeah, the the frozen one had me like knocked out. <laughs> I I distinctly remember me and Brian walking up the stairs of the grandstand court, and just right in the middle of it, I just heard Brian go, "Wow!" <laughs> For him to be impressed by his own like buzz level is pretty like yeah. Angel down, like that trip to Epcot where we did the the drinking around the world. If if that had ended with a honey deuce at the U.S. Open, I would have been leaving in an ambulance. <laughs> it was really hot that day too. So just my thumb up on the gurney, and everyone claps. He's alive, everybody. He's alive. <laughs> so speaking of Serena, uh, during our last episode where we kind of did a run through of all of Joe Biden's medal picks, we talked about two athletes who are female athletes who were selected by Joe Biden, Megan Rapino and Simone Biles. And we had kind of talked about us kind of being on opposite sides of the fence on whether or not they deserved it at the stage that they got it. And I'm curious, I thought about it at the time, but I did not think that it was appropriate to pit female athletes against each other. There's room for all of them. But can do we think like he was just waiting for her to retire? Do we think Joe Biden called Serena and she was like, no, 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 I'm doing my last open. Give it to me next year. Like, I just I feel like she's somebody who is so destined for it. Mm-hmm. All right. I hope that anyone listening to this still isn't in their retirement Serena glow. Because as a tennis fan, I know that for a solid 10 years there, she was a huge asshole, both to tennis officials and to her fellow American tennis players. I don't know about Megan Rapinoe enough about her past criticisms to know if that is a factor with her, but I do know that Serena wasn't exactly a person who fostered and encouraged American tennis. Wasn't a good sport, perhaps, you would say? Yes. Didn't she threaten to choke an official with a tennis ball once? Yes, she did. Okay. She was right. <laughs> that French guy had no I'll, right. I'll say it. But I don't know if you've heard of this athlete. He used to play basketball in the 90s. Um, I think his name was Michael Jordan. And I watched this no. seven-piece documentary about him called The Last Dance. And I took and that personally. And apparently it was him being a dance. Like his dance was like taunting people because he was such a ginormous asshole. And famously, mm-hmm. he does have the medal. So I don't I don't think being an asshole negates it. So I'm, I'm pushing Next her year. forward. Yeah. I'm saying Serena for the medal. Okay. I want her to choke Joe Biden with a tennis ball. <laughs> and I'm I'm high on Joe Biden right now. He's doing amazing. Mm. Dark Brandon, I love you. You and your glowing <laughs> eyes. Agreed. Through our previous <laughs> metal profiles, I think we can safely say that plenty of assholes have been named the uh, Medal of Freedom. The podcast, the titular Limbaugh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Lisa Serena Williams believes Handy- Sandy Hook happened. Oh, my God. <laughs> God. <laughs> I mean, isn't like semi serious question? Isn't being an asshole kind of an American value? It's a it's a tradition. Yeah. We're very individualistic. We're very like get what you want. And if you have to murder a couple tennis officials in, on live television to do it, then do it, Serena. I don't know. I just I look at Bill Russell as the polar opposite of Serena Williams. That's um, Clay's dad. For those that don't know, that <laughs> don't know. Yes, R.I.P. My dad. The huge basketball player with the Boston Celtics. <laughs> Bill Russell. 
I was like, wow, Clay is announcing that his dad died on the podcast. <laughs> that would be literally <laughs> such a Clay move. And that my dad was Bill Russell. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Side note, my real dad is Bill Russell. Yeah. During segments, I'm going to have to send an edible arrangement. <laughs> Clay, Clay cried when Serena retired, but he didn't cry when his dad died. It had nothing to do with the fact Not that his dad when, had just died. When my father, Bill Russell, died. Yes. R.I.P. To a real one. Yeah. <laughs> You're like a father to me, Bill. Yep. Wait, I need to Google him so I know just how funny this whole line of jokes is. Oh, do it. Get ready. <laughs> okay. That's Pops. I mean, he's tall. You are the shortest man in your immediate family. Uh-huh. So the fact that yeah. he's 6'10". Um, okay, he's from Louisiana, and so is Clay's mom. It is true, yes. So, but there is one one big problem, which is that um, he's not white, right? Yes, but you know, recessive genes—you never know. Clay's uh-huh. white. We can't have a podcast with three white people. Uh. I gotta go. <laughs> yep. Mm, yeah, we're not we're not checking all the demographics here for sure. You're right. <sighs> Well, yeah, so the stunning conclusion to the U.S. Open has yet to occur as we record, but there's been some, there's been some upsets. There's been, it's a, I think it's been a really fun year, but even beyond just Serena's final bow. I agree. Even after she was defeated, the uh, attendance is still setting records. It's been great for the city. It's been great for the sport. So really cool year for, for the U.S. Open. It's been great for the borough of Queens. Yeah. Now, if you're unable to make it out to Billie Jean King Stadium and you still want to enjoy a little U.S. Open at home, might I suggest you make their signature cocktail, the Honeydews, at home. It's a half a cup of vodka, one cup of lemonade, and then a splash of Chambord, which is a raspberry liqueur. Now, at at the stadium, they use Grey Goose vodka, which, if you can get it, is great. You're never going to have a bad time with Grey Goose. It's top shelf, so you won't have a hangover if you're not used to drinking. But you can skimp on that. You can use a Tito's. You can use a, a comparable vodka. The place where you cannot cut the corner is the Chambord because it's a liqueur. Anything that's like it but not it is going to be too sweet. It's going to give you a hangover. It's not going to give you that same really nice layered texture that Chambord gives you. If you're really feeling fancy and you have a melon baller, you know, if you're like an optometrist who likes to torture your patients, scoop three scoops of honeydew melon. Put them on a little spear. You'll feel like you're right there without dealing with all of the white people who don't know how to walk in a straight line at the tennis stadium. It's amazing. <laughs> and if anybody wants to hear about tennis players, <laughs> reach out to me. Oh, wait. If you're... I can tell you which ones I think are hot. So can I. <laughs> um, if you really want the authentic experience, you can spend a couple extra minutes um, with a tiny little paintbrush putting the names of all the previous U.S. Open winners on the cup before <laughs> you drink the honeydews. That one's optional. Next up, Christine with a profile of this week's medal winner. All right. So this week we find ourselves back with Tricky Dick Nixon and his list of recipients. So... (laughs) little uh, a little meta commentary here so i was looking at the list and really had a tough choice tough time picking someone because he gave it to basically every astronaut and i can't in good conscience 
do an astronaut profile in front of Clay Russell because I would miss things, I would get things wrong, he would cry more than he cried when Serena Williams retired, so not worth it. But hold on, I told you that that Artemis rocket is about to launch, so like you had free reign to do an astronaut profile for that. Oh, that's true. All right, well. Yeah, but based on how many times it's been delayed, I bet that it it may remain on the launch pad by the time we come around to Nixon again. <laughs> Correct. I mean, that's what stinks about, you know, public-funded space exploration. If Elon Musk was paying for that, he would have been like, I don't care if they die. Send their bodies up. I want it on the moon now. Right. I don't care yeah. how many small children get decapitated by this rocket. It's going to space. Well, I actually was looking into that because the SpaceX rockets are very small. Like, they have enough power to get to the space station and that's it. This thing that is about ready to launch, every time it's ignited, it's like one-tenth of the power of Hiroshima. It's like a big thing. So if it, you know, explodes on the launch pads, somebody might die. A couple people. Yeah, just one person. <laughs> um, right. So that narrows the list down significantly. We've already done two passes with Nixon. And then I briefly considered Duke Ellington, but then that felt like another clay pick. I was like, I'm going to miss a bunch of like music stuff. And so anyway. It is weird how Nixon had great picks. Like they're good. And none of them yeah. are like, yeah. So anyway, so the person I picked, which is itself a little mini story, is DeWitt Wallace, founder of Reader's Digest. And I was just like, that's my pick. I'm doing uh, DeWitt Wallace, founder of Reader's Digest. And Brian's like, really? And you're just going to skip right over the woman? And keep in mind, the list I was looking at was alphabetical. So his wife, Lila Ackeson, A-C-H-E-S-O-N, Wallace, also received the medal. And her name is... Literally right next to his on the list. I also look at Nixon's list, and I think that he's a lot like Trump in that Nixon also thought that he was going to have a second term, so he didn't really name that many people no. while in office. Yeah, it's kind of short, especially when you're giving it... He also gave, like, a group medal to the entire ground team for the Apollo mission. Like, he was just giving them out like candy to anyone that had anything yeah. to do with space um, exploration. Yeah, Nixon handed out 28. Trump handed out 24 so far. Now, what I did say to Christine was Christine said she was doing the founder of Reader's Digest. And I said, oh, good, the woman. And she was like, no, I'm doing her husband. And the readers of our podcast will know, uh, even though Christine didn't, that Nixon only gave out two medals to female recipients, Adela Roger St. John, who I profiled the last time we went through Nixon, and the wife of the founder of Reader's Digest, who was a known philanthropist. Other than that, that's it. Somehow he had time to give it to three astronauts and nine journalists, journalists who would be responsible for sending him home early <laughs> for stopping his next medal for ceremony from happening. But two women. It's not International Women's Month anymore, everybody, but it's still not right. <laughs> and, like, I hate to say it, and I, I'll, I'll give her credit where it's due when I, when I talk about her, but, like, she's basically the wife of the guy who founded Reader's Digest. So it's also a little bit, like, disappointing mm. that as the only, as 50% of the female recipients from Nixon, it was a little bit, like, she was on the coattails of her of her husband. Not on the coattails. It's like when you invite your friend to dinner and they're like, "Can I bring my husband?" Like that's essentially what happened. Yes. He was like, "Oh, I want, I want you to come to DC and get this medal." And it was like, "Can my wife come?" And, and Richard Nixon was like, "I guess she can hang out with Pat." 
<laughs> it's very similar to Trump's very first pick, which is Miriam Adelson, which the only reason Sheldon. she was picked is because she was married to Sheldon Adelson. Mm-hmm. Other than that, and this is in the 21st century, he only named two other women on his pick. Who were both golfers. <laughs> At least Nixon had an excuse of it being half a century ago. Yeah. Yeah. Not Donald Trump. But, Christine, let's get into it. Yeah. And don't give us the Reader's Digest version. I oh want all the details. All right. So I guess I have to disclose, in full disclosure. So I grew up in Chappaqua, New York, which is where the headquarters of Reader's Digest is located. DeWitt Wallace, for his entire like adulthood and his whole Reader's Digest career, lived in the area. And it's the Reader's Digest office... Sorry, former Reader's Digest office that has since been redeveloped and has like a Whole Foods and stuff. So they paved paradise and put up a Whole Foods. But uh, when it still existed, it was literally across the street from my high school. So it's like I have this weird soft spot for Reader's Digest in general. But for you guys, I'm curious what your thoughts are on Reader's Digest. Like, what do you think of when you think of Reader's Digest? Is it like... Something that old people read, something you read like in the waiting room at the doctor's office or a lot of waiting rooms for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my parents subscribed or I don't know if they subscribed or if it was like a gift with like one of the credit cards they held, but we we received it in the mail for years. And I remember being very upset because Reader's Digest, if you can remember all the way back then into the 90s, was the same size as the TV guide. And I would always get very excited thinking like, oh my God, what's it going to be this week? An exclusive on Vanna, the girls from Friends. You know, I'll look at the NBC lineup for Thursday and then I'd pick it up and it would be like, Mary Higgins Clark excerpt. And I'd be like, ah, this shit again? (laughs) Again? I think that's Brian talked in a (laughs) nutshell right there. Being disappointed in articles. A literary magazine? Get this out of (laughs) here. But I also like I the other thing that I remember is like there would be like advice on like things that would only upset like a boomer who would read Reader's Digest. Like my neighbor's children keep throwing their basketball over the fence. What should I do? And it would be like, you know, a how to like etiquette thing about like, you know, the best way to build community is to be nice to those kids. And I was always like, how did this and the excerpt from, you know, the new John Grisham novel end up in a magazine together? But now that I know that it's it was in Chappaqua, it all makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to get off topic, but my favorite thing now is how much of retail in the United States is solely targeted at retired boomers. Just walk into any grocery store and every single commemorative magazine is like, hey, remember Elvis? <laughs> uh, hey, remember the 60s? That was a fun time, wasn't it? It's Men every long single hair. magazine is tailored toward retired boomers. Yeah. Life magazine remembers the Carol Burnett show. <laughs> Listen, she's having a career, a Carolanaissance, and I'm here for it. Wouldn't it be a Burnettaissance? How old is she now? She's like a million. Um, she's not as old as you would think. Like, she's not as old as Betty White. Well, Betty White's dead. Well, was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she, I just know she took a, a dramatic role in the recently concluded show Better Call Saul, which I don't watch, but my husband watches. Mm. So I like saw, I was like, is that Carol Burnett just like playing a, like an old lady? It was crazy. Anyway. She is 89 years old. Uh, Has, is she a recipient? No. 
I think she is. Nope. Hold on. Was 2005. George W. Bush. W? George W. Oh, my yep. God. He has another one with good picks. Damn it. <laughs> yeah. You know, even a stop clock is right twice a day, yada, yada. The stodgy, not the the MAGA Republicans, but the stodgy Republicans have good picks. I have to hand it to them. I just imagine George W. Bush being like, when she came down the stairs wearing that Scarlett O'Hara curtain rod, I just laughed. I told Laura, that's so funny. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, look at that. <laughs> yeah, just hold on. Let's go to George H.W. Bush here. I have to see this. Yeah, Lucille Ball. George Schultz, Dick Cheney. Okay, maybe he didn't have great picks. Actually, no. Toward the end, he went through a run. So Lucille Ball, Ted Williams, Johnny Carson, Ella Fitzgerald, Audrey Hepburn. Wow. Yeah, he had a run. Well, whoever gets him next will have a, a lot to choose from. Yeah. All right, so DeWitt Wallace, uh, actually not a New Yorker. I thought I was doing like an old New York boy, so I was surprised to find out he's actually from St. Paul, Minnesota. He was born on November 12, 1889, died in uh, 1981 at the age of 91. So he, you know, his early years were fine. He went to some nice prep school. He went to um, UC Berkeley, worked in a, after college, worked at a publishing firm specializing in farming literature. And I know that sounds like not much has happened so far, but the two crucial things that happened in those early years of his life, when he was a young man, magazines were a huge deal in like the 1910s when he was, you know, either in college or immediately post-college. And I know it's hard to remember now, but even like when I was first an adult with my own place, if you subscribe to a magazine... Like, before you know it, you have a million of these magazines, and you always tell yourself you're going to, like, go back and read the articles, and you never do, and then you throw them away, and yada, yada. He would keep, like, a little file of articles that interest him and um, interested him, and he would make notes of, like, the most interesting pieces about it because he was like, I'm never going to go back and read all these magazines, so here are the things that I want to remember. The other thing was he worked for a publishing company that uh, printed farming publications stick with me guys and it was during it was a big thing back in the yeah, day. yeah no it was a really big deal i'm just one of my biggest sources for my research was his new york times obituary always a gold mine observing this is about dewitt wallace observing that the united states department of agriculture and its bureaus produced excellent free pamphlets for farmers he left his job at the age of 26 borrowed some money and printed his own booklet an annotated listing of these publications that he entitled getting the most out of farming and then he started selling it and yada, yada. It didn't quite take off. And then World War I happened. So he kind of found himself like back in the working world and had kind of like the, the seed of that idea of digesting larger publications or longer articles into these like bite-sized things was kind of the thing that he was focusing on. I don't know that he was calling it Reader's Digest yet, but he took his first like pilot not pilot but like his first draft of like this is my idea contained 31 articles from a variety of magazines and he would literally read the articles and by hand rewrite them much shorter only retaining the most relevant information from the articles so he was like shopping this around to publishers and apparently everyone was like this is the dumbest idea ever except for William Randolph Hearst and he was like 
encouraging, but still didn't think he was like, you know, I bet you could get up to like 300,000 subscribers for this. Like, I think there's a market for this. I can't, I don't have the numbers in front of me. If I find them quickly, we could splice it in. But I mean, I think at its height, it was like 30 million subscribers of which only I think 18 million were in the United States. It had like a huge international, I got translated into like an insane number of languages and things like that. He also, he had perfect timing in that. Mm -hmm. The first issue appeared in 1922, right when new mediums of consumption came about radio first to take people's attention away from solely reading books and later television. So he, really had the benefit of timing in that sense. Well, and don't you guys think, or the thing that I think, which I'm happy to talk about, is he, how incredibly ahead of his time he was. He sort of got this idea like, <laughs> you know, in the 19-teens, 1910s, he was like, people are so busy, there's so much going on, who has time to read all these long-form articles in all these different magazines? And it's funny that here we are over 100 years later and like people's attention spans just continue to shrink <laughs> I, th- I think he was really ahead of his time. I think it's cool that William Randolph Hearst, of all, of all people, was like, yeah, no, I think there's a market for that. But literally every other publisher was like, that's dumb. I'm thrilled to hear William Randolph Hearst's name in this one because he was also a prominent feature in my Nixon pick. So It was a big time man, for the, the big publishers. Had, his, yeah, had every pot on the stove. So while he's in this sort of incubation phase for this idea... And starting to honestly get a little discouraged, he meets Lila Ackeson, his future wife. She was college educated, which was like nothing to sneeze at um, at the time period. And she was like a sister of a friend. And she was like, this is a great idea. Like, you should go for it. I love this idea. And he was like, all right, let's do it. We're going to do it. And so that's sort of like a transition to, although her um, Lila Wallace's claim to fame is being his wife and just kind of via their the massive success of Reader's Digest and their subsequent wealth becoming a philanthropist like that was one of those moments where he was like maybe not close to giving up but was like really discouraged and she was like she's like the Mackenzie not Mackenzie Davis what is her name Mackenzie Bezos yeah you know where it was like when she got such an insane amount of money in the divorce everybody was like good because she was there when he was starting up Amazon and like worked with him to like help him build the business and so it's like she does deserve half his money and so in that sense Lila does deserve um to share this with him because he could have given up and he could have walked away and she was like no this is a great idea he i guess it, it was a little unclear to me how he kind of got it started without the backing of any publishers it sounds like they were just almost if not literally, then close to literally selling subscriptions door to door. He said they focused on women, which I actually think now Reader's Digest, we think of it as like the boomer publication, and it probably is. But I think it was also when it was like new and cool was like marketed to women. So as I mentioned, he had these 31 articles that he digested for that issue that he had come up with initially, and that was basically the basis for the first issue. And that was in 1922. By 1926... They had 30,000 subscribers. By 1929, a prominent year in American history, they had almost the 300,000 subscribers that William Randolph Hearst was like, maybe someday you'll get there. So at the beginning of this, it was literally hit. Like he made every single issue himself by going and reading magazines and writing, rewriting them to be much shorter 
and to contain the most important information. Uh, Over time, obviously, as it got more and more successful, he got a staff. He was always very heavily involved in in the newsroom and in the management of the publication. And he was someone that sort of shunned, even though he was in publishing, he was like publicity shy. He wasn't really like a man about town. He was just really focused on his passion project. Their first office was like a little frumpy office in Greenwich Village, but they quickly moved to Westchester County. And Mrs. Wallace, Lila, was instrumental in designing. So the the Reader's Di- former Reader's Digest building was like right off the Sawmill Parkway and like up on this very dramatic hill that exploded with daffodil blooms every spring. And it was like this, it looked like a mansion. Like if you didn't know that it was a, a publishing office, it just, and you know, there are a couple mansions up there, so it did fit right in. So that was something that she worked on. And originally, the articles that they used, like, none of the, they didn't even really have to get the rights to them because nobody really cared. They thought this was this little, like, thing that wasn't going to go anywhere. And so he was like, hey, guys, so I'm going to, like, rewrite this article to be much shorter and put it in this, like, little publication I'm making. And they were like, okay, fine. And then it was only once it started to get more successful that he had to actually start paying for the rights. rights But, um... Yeah, I mean, the rest is kind of history. I think something that was really, I think, is noteworthy about the early days of Reader's Digest under DeWitt Wallace was, like, as they started publishing, which they still do to this day, original content, it isn't only a digest anymore. There are people that write specifically for them. Some of the things that he was writing about were kind of novel. So the article was published in 1935. So I, uh, I assume either that year, maybe 1934, he was kind of coming up with this idea and researching it, which was about auto safety. So the automobile was still very new. And people didn't, there wasn't a lot of like public information about auto safety. And he like spoke to someone who owned a garage in Armonk, which is the town not far from where he lived. And was like, yeah, are there a lot of bad auto accidents? And the guy was like, oh my God, yeah. Like people get horrifically hurt and killed crashing these things. And so they, one of their first like major original articles was this thing about auto safety, which was genuinely news to a lot of people. That was the first article that was an original Reader's Digest piece that was then reprinted in other publications. And so I think in addition to this, like, hey, this is cool, he'll condense things down to these handy little sound bites, there there was also some substance there. And he was also, like, it's just clear that his brain was really tuned into, like, what's going to matter to people. Mm-hmm. Both in go to where the medium is heading instead of where it is now. Yeah, I also think having read all of those articles, he was able to like something that he had read had kind of triggered his thought process about automobile accidents and automobile safety. And like you've all done it at two o'clock in the morning where you fall down a rabbit hole. Um, he was just doing it in like a more literary at the sense. library. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, his rabbit hole. You know, had a he had to do them at two p.m. because the library closed at five. Mm-hmm. And he had to be very... It is interesting just when you think about the medium of how people got their information back in the day. I just looked it up. Time Magazine premiered a mere 13 months after the first issue of Reader's Digest. And previously to that, because there was no television news or television at all or radio, you just relied on your newspaper that sometimes published twice to three times a day. And everything was in the immediate and magazines were the first time that someone kind of took a step back and said, all right, let's actually write a feature 
like auto accidents aren't necessarily an immediate news item, yes. but it's something that should be discussed. And the way that he was able to be prescient with that and think about, okay, what are issues that may not immediately affect people, but are still needing to be discussed is incredibly fascinating how they thought of that, both with Reader's Digest and Time Magazine as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that's a really good point. I didn't think about other, um, like Time Magazine isn't a digest, but yeah, it's a monthly periodical that's, yeah, the slower pace of magazine publishing, whether it was monthly or even weekly, probably forced their hand because they're like, okay, we're not going to be printing this like blood on the page. So what are we going to write about? So just the Mm -hmm. last few things. So obviously they became extraordinary wealthy, Wallace and Lila, and more so Lila because Wallace was very hands-on with with the magazine. She really focused on philanthropy. And I mean, it was like, kind of reminded me actually of Brooke Astor because it was this interesting combination of like what what you would expect. Like she was involved with the Met. They gave large gifts to Juilliard, things like that. But then she also had little more local passion projects. Like there was some mansion on the Hudson River that was falling apart and there was a little bit of a grassroots effort to refurbish this home so it didn't fall apart and she gave them fifty thousand dollars there's a there's a park in the town of mount kisco which is where their house was which is right next to chappaqua and it's just this like park like right in the middle of i use the word downtown loosely but like in the center of town and she was like you know what it needs is like a nice gazebo and so she just paid out of pocket for this nice gazebo um, in the town where she lived. And so she also was a collector of art purely from a place of passion. She collected art that she genuinely liked. Maybe she employed someone, I don't know, but she wasn't one of those people who was very strategic, like, oh, this is the cool artist right now, or this is an up and comer, or this is going to appreciate and value because of XYZ reason. She was just like, I really like this piece. And so I'm going to buy it. She's not going to buy it and keep it in some dark warehouse until it appreciates and value exactly yeah and so it's you know the list of places that she's donated to is long but it's yeah she donated to um sloan kettering and super cancer research multiple new york hospitals um as i mentioned the met she gave money to the university of oregon which is where she went to college and some women's organizations and things like that so they they both passed away in their 90s. He passed away, I think I mentioned 1981. He was 91, and then she passed away a few years later at 94 in declining health. Interestingly enough, they never had children, so all of their money was put into a foundation, I guess, and you know, and their legacy just sort of became the whoever was handling their. I imagine it's all gone now, but whoever was um, in charge of their. Um, estates after they passed away was essentially told to continue giving it away to philanthropic organizations. So the only thing we have to mention, because it's relevant both to the podcast and to give a fair assessment of them, because they both sound pretty great and it sounds like they were. People are people are complex. So he was, I don't know how much Lila cared about politics, but DeWitt Wallace was a conservative Republican. He was close with Richard Nixon, like personally, as well as Dwight Eisenhower, apparently, anti-communist. He actually had, I couldn't really, I saw this referred to somewhere. I couldn't find it myself, but apparently he, Richard Nixon actually like wrote things that were, that were published in Reader's Digest. And so his politics was, he was a strong um, Nixon supporter and his politics 
I have to imagine were somewhat of a factor in his selection as a medal recipient. Like I, I think he, both he and his wife deserve it anyway, because this was such a groundbreaking moment in, you know, American journalism. And then with Lila's philanthropy, but it's like, but it also was a, a little bit of a buddy, buddy pick because this was someone that was a big Nixon supporter. Now, Christine, I have a question. Mm -hmm. I feel like Westchester is not as, um, you know, organized as New York city. Do you think it's possible that she was just at that park one day and was like, it needs a gazebo, and then the next day she just showed up with a gazebo without clearing it with the townspeople? Because I feel like when you're that rich, that's the kind of shit you can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that's what I want to imagine. I just want to imagine she showed up one day, like the mayor or, you know, town chancellor, I don't know what you people have up in Westchester, like just shows up and she's just there with blueprints and she's like pointing. And like and a cute little hard banging. hat. <laughs> Ma'am, why are you doing this? <laughs> I didn't have anywhere to put up my feet. <laughs> this park needs a gazebo. It's depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Where am I supposed to place my lemonade glass? Yeah, I would imagine that a lot of those roles in towns in Westchester are, like, part-time. So, yeah, I don't think anyone was going to stop her if she just, like... I just feel like it was possible for that woman to steamroll over anybody. I know. Mm. Like in New York, especially like, you know, like money carries such favor when, especially when you have that much of it, I can't like not saying that Westchester is not a moneyed area, but I just feel like at that time, like her oh, it was different. reign, yeah. was, she was reigning there. Like it wasn't so much as she was living. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and actually, do you know who lives in their former mansion? Um, I was going to ask if you knew what house they lived in. I do. <laughs> Uh, it's called, like, High Winds or something. I mean, a house that expensive has to have a name. It's true. Yes, and it's, like, on a lake, obviously far from town. But Nelson Peltz, the billionaire who's one of his many, many, many children, is Nicola Peltz, who recently married Brooklyn Beckham. Oh, yeah. So Brooklyn Beckham's father-in-law now owns that home. So good for him. The family that's bullying the Beckhams. I love them. Mm-hmm. And actually, do you know who used to be the next-door <laughs> neighbor to that home? Don Knotts. Mariah Carey and Tommy Mottola. Wow. Oh, man. The house has since been torn down, and I think they've rebuilt, someone's rebuilt some other home. But uh, when I was... Do you think it was actually demolished, or Mariah Carey just hit a high C and just, like, the foundations crumbled to the ground? Can't rule anything out. And then the instrumentation for Honey started, and she ended her sexy error. (laughs) I'm a butterfly. She was free of Tommy. Yeah, so that's that's sort of it. I think this is not a Limbaugh because I think his accomplishments. Also, I don't think that the um, some of the things that he was highlighting in the magazine were particularly conservative. At least not the way we think of conservative now. <laughs> you mean he didn't write an expose about the big lie? <laughs> exactly. It was short, but it was to the point. <laughs> but no, you know, it was like the dangers of smoking and the dangers of automobile accidents. Like it was like he was just kind of from a from a like politically neutral place. Seemed to be just thinking of things that would be of interest to the American people. And I think that it's hard to. And maybe you guys can kind of we can jam about this in a second when we go to who would we compare this to today? But. I, like I was trying to think about, there's probably a lot of things today that are reflected in the kind of changes that he made to how media was handled and and publications and how you tell stories. You know, I feel like blogs like Gawker or whatever aren't as 
I think Gawker died and was reborn. But, you know, the idea that they would just take stories they were seeing and summarize them in their own way. I think the way that blogs like that take existing news articles and, and would summarize them in their own way, these are all sort of legacies of the, the Reader's Digest ethos. But, you know, this was a little bit of you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, and, and Richard Nixon giving the medal to two people who were very publicly supportive of him. So it's like... Not a Limbaugh, but there's like a, like the really nice flaky sea salt. Like you don't use too much because it, it goes a long way. We're going to put like a little sea salt of Limbaugh-ishness on the, on the top here. What do you think? Like a finishing salt. A dusting. Yeah. I think that the very nature of television news can be given credit through Reader's Digest mm-hmm. in that you don't have an unlimited amount of time to tell a story. You have nine minutes before you have to get to a commercial break. And so what are the essentials of the story? Cut it down. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Well, and I think, I I didn't read that this was something he talked about. I think it was like, people are going to like this. Like, people are, this is going to help get this information out there. I don't know that he really spent a lot of time thinking about, like, accessibility. Because, I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me in terms of, like, what was the literacy rate in the United States in 1922? And even if someone was literate, like, could read, it would probably have been very daunting to pick up this big newspaper with these long articles um, if you just kind of were like, okay, yeah, I'm not the kind of person who's going to spend an hour reading this dense newspaper every day, but I can, once a month, I can I can flip through this magazine and and sort of read these important stories. And so I think that is an ongoing story <laughs> throughout the development of mass communication. It's like, it's, it, it can't be anything but a good thing for people to get, to, to, for there to be new ways for people to get information, as long, as long as the information is correct and fairly represented. I am yeah. curious. I do wonder what was an early example of a Fox News where there were points where they were completely fabricating stories. I don't know. I mean, if we're going to keep doing journalistic medal winners, maybe we need to do some deep dives on, like, some of the stuff. Yeah. So what do you guys think in terms of who who this would be today or someone to compare him to for today? Well, I agree with Clay's assessment about essentially Reader's Digest being the blueprint for cable news. So I would say Ted Turner, the founder of CNN. Mm. And then my dark pick, sort of like a Limbaugh for sure, would be Mark Zuckerberg. Because whether or not he decided that he was going to create a news organization when he decided to slut shame Erica Albright on Facebook um, in a Harvard dorm room in 2003, unfortunately... Facebook has become the town square for a lot of people, and that is how they get their news. Mm -hmm. And instead of it being Mm -hmm. a Reader's Digest version, it becomes whatever the aggregated text is beneath the headline, and that becomes the story, the whole story, and nothing but. This person is is definitely of the era, but I keep thinking about Billy Graham Mm. in that he had nothing necessarily new to say when he was preaching, but he put a very telegenic face on it and kind of simplified it for people. Uh, I kind of look at that as a Reader's Digest thing as well. Yeah, and so I guess that's the dark side of... I mean, I know accessibility is a broad term, right? And we mostly think of it as something good, (laughs) making information more accessible to people. But I think that's also the danger is that 
giving like the algorithm I think is the I assume it can go even deeper I shudder to think but like the algorithm is like oh you like this you'll want more of this if you like this you'll want this other thing that's very similar to this and you'll want more of this and this and this and it just like almost condenses your what you're being given to cater to Mm -hmm. what you're looking for whereas at least with something like a reader's digest like yes it was originally literally just DeWitt in a library writing his shortened version of articles, but over time it became a staff. There started to be a reputation for the journalists that work there. And so I think it's like when you hand over the responsibility of digesting information over to somebody else, that's a potentially dangerous thing to do. Yeah, there are good sides and bad sides to curation. Mm-hmm. The good side is maybe being turned on to something that you didn't necessarily know about. The bad thing is, is someone, especially if they have an agenda, being steered toward only one certain type of thought and philosophy. Right. Well, that's it for the Wallaces. Supplemental showdown? I mean, I didn't really, like, he is... Is it worth it or not? It's too short because it's the Reader's Digest version. (laughs) All right, stick around, and we're going to give our medals of the week. Face paint and wait. Oh, this isn't even a visual medium. What is he doing? I don't know. I mean, it looks like he's almost preparing for some type of battle or something. I'm scared. I am too. Brian, what are you doing? All right, hold on. He's walking over. Be quiet. Oh, oh. Be quiet. Hey, hey, are you ready to, to do? We're just gonna do our medals of the week, Brian, and then you can do whatever you're, whatever you're doing over there. Oh, this is for the medals of the week. <gasps> I'm back from Venice, baby, and I have some medals to give. And for those of you who are new to the podcast, this is the segment where we get to pick one person, place, thing, idea, and we get to celebrate them for the contribution that they've made to society at large, the pop culture landscape, pretty much anything you want to shout out, we can celebrate. And with the Venice Film Festival in full swing, I had no choice but to give my medal of the week to Florence Pugh. Mm, mm-hmm. The Academy Award nominated actress, we know her from Little Women and Midsommar. She is uh, about to star in the second Olivia Wilde film, Don't Worry Darling. And for months, uh, Demois has been reporting that Florence Pugh and Olivia Wilde hate each other. And it's all been in whispers, and it's all been very, very hush-hush, and there's no way to really know uh, if it's just, you know, our society's toxic inclination to put two women against each other. Mm. But then Variety interviewed Olivia Wilde, and Florence Pugh was asked to give a quote, and she said, I'm too busy filming Dune. I don't have anything to say about this. And from that point on, Florence Pugh essentially cracked an egg and made the world's most delicious omelet. And this omelet is an omelet that, like, Jesus made, where it can feed everybody. Because everyone I know is talking about Mm -hmm. this movie and what must have gone on behind the scenes. 
But the real reason why I need to give this medal of the week to Florence Pugh is at the Venice Film Festival, she was supposed to do her one piece of participation in the press for this film. And she was supposed to go to a press conference and walk the red carpet with the cast. The day before the press conference, Florence Pugh's publicist said, oh, Dune's running late. Um, she's not going <laughs> to land until about 1.30, so she's going to miss the press conference. So Miss Flo, as Olivia Wilde once referred to her, shows up a half hour into this press conference in head-to-toe purple Valentino, releases a video of her strutting into the film festival holding the Brian Tuft cocktail of choice in Aperol Spritz, <laughs> and then puts on the most elaborate gown I've ever seen, sits side saddle on the hull of a yacht and pulls into this film festival. <laughs> and I'm going to celebrate Florence Pugh because she is a talented actress. She has not said anything. And she has successfully made the entire thing about her, which is something that I strive to do in every sense. And that's why I'm going to give Clay's Medal of the Week to Chris Pine. Because Chris <laughs> Pine attended that same premiere and he did not do or say anything. The man looked like he was astral projecting himself anywhere but in Venice. And I have not been to Venice. I've been to Italy a few times. Sadly, I've not made it to Venice. Here it's beautiful. Gotta hurry because it's sinking. And the drama that these people have unfolded has probably only sped that process up. But Chris Pine looked so oh, above looked, everything that was going on. He also looked really good. Christine, he's slowly talking faster <laughs> as he gets more excited. I know. Am I going to get to do a medal? Okay. is a thing where I feel that I can give that medal to Chris Pine on Clay's behalf. Because when there is petty drama at the workplace, in our friend group, just in society at large, Clay tends to step aside, just like Chris Pine. Mm, yeah. And... There are people who don't do that. And that's why I'm going to give Christine's Medal of the Week as a Limbaugh to Shia LaBeouf. And because Shia LaBeouf took the exact opposite course of action here. In the Variety article, Olivia Wilde says that she originally casted Shia LaBeouf in the Harry Styles role in the film, but had to fire Shia because he was toxic on set. And Shia LaBeouf could have just sat there and ate his crackers, but instead decided to unleash an email calling Olivia Wilde a liar, and then released a series of text messages. Like, he was like, oh, I kept the receipts, <laughs> and put them out there. And then the piece de resistance is he released a video in which... Olivia Wilde is driving in a car. And the whole thing about Olivia Wilde, I feel like be, having been on the OC, having been married to Jason Sudeikis, is that she seems like kind of cool and down to earth. And like, it's admirable that she's gone from being this little, you know, character on the OC to directing her own films. Booksmart was great. This new movie looks like a Slim Aaron's movie, a Slim Aaron's photo that's a horror movie. I'm very excited about what she's accomplished. But in the beginning of the video, she says, Oh, sorry, I'm so sweaty. I was just riding my horse. That's not down to earth. But Shia LaBeouf <laughs> put that shit out there. And then he just like completely turned the whole thing on its head. And he's just rescinded from this. He's not part of it. He didn't have to go to Italy. And Shia LaBeouf is a toxic person. There's allegations of abuse. Uh, he's currently in a lawsuit with FKA Twigs, his, I think, former fiance, because he allegedly assaulted and was very, very abusive to her. So that's why this has to, like, I be, I award that, that kind of messy behavior, but the other stuff is why it has to be a limbaugh. Mm, mm. And 
I feel bad having taken your medals from you, but don't worry, darling. They went to deserving people. <laughs> you know, my medal pick was not that good anyway. Yeah, I... I graciously accept your I love picks. that I'm the avatar for Shia because, like, I take drama and I make it worse. <laughs> and I, I enjoy the Chris Pine comparison. I've always liked Chris Pine. Um, I also, I cried this week when Serena retired, just like Chris Pine when Beyonce sang. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Actually, you know what? I'm awarding a fourth medal with distinction to Beanie Feldstein because on Monday no. night... Hours before Leah Michelle took the stage at Funny Girl, an interview with Beanie Feldstein and Florence Pugh went viral. They interviewed each other for Variety's Actors on Actors, and Florence Pugh asked Beanie Feldstein, Golden Globe nominee for Booksmart, Olivia Wilde's debut directorial film, what it was like working with Olivia Wilde. And Florence Pugh said... I'm dying to work with Olivia. I love her. I'm so jealous that you got to make that movie. I just feel like she probably created such a great on-set camaraderie. There were so many young people working together. I can't believe it. And you want to know something? Beanie Feldstein, unbeknownst of anything that was coming, this was three years ago. I don't even think Beanie Feldstein had heard the word coronavirus. (laughs) Looks Florence Pugh dead in the eyes and goes... The two of you working together, you're going to get on like a house on fire because you both have this passion and this fire intensity. And I know that the two of you would really get it together. And to me, the idea that that story went viral on Monday, just as the Venice Film Festival and the Don't Worry Darling of It All was wrapping up, connects immediately to Tuesday with Leah Michelle debuting on Funny Girl. That's... Beanie Feldstein. She's taking us from one incredible story that dominated gay Twitter and brought us directly into the next one. And that's why, to me, she is not only my fourth Medal of the Week pick, but she gets it with distinction. (gasps) Wow. I don't... I don't know what to say. I mean, I want to talk about the Don't Worry Darling drama for the rest of my life. Um, I think Mm. we're all going to look back on this week and realize it was pivotal in all of our lives. Do you think people are going to forget to go to see the film? Not Brian. Oh, I'm not. <laughs> I have our ticket spot. Oh, yeah. All right, so all... that's Limbaugh off-site number two is <laughs> Don't Worry, Darling. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to pick a fave, but yeah. I want more of this. Like, I want every film to have this level of drama leading up to the release of it. Well, don't you feel like to bring the beanie thing back in? Uh, I think there's so much that due to like publicists and like the industry being very insular and all this stuff that we'd never hear about. Cause people are like, just grit your teeth, get through the movie, smile at the press conference and the premiere and move on. And it's like, we don't normally get to hear all the little like shit that goes down. And the fact that with beanie Feldstein's very messy departure, from Funny Girl and Leah taking over and then the book smart stuff. It's like we're seeing behind the scenes and it's almost like, oh, it's like every other office in the world. Like it's a bunch of people who are insane, like driving each other crazy. The only difference is that like they only have to do it for a couple months and then they move on to the next movie. I mean, I've said for a while, the worst thing about modern day Hollywood is that everyone is striving to be relatable. And that's why I love people who are like ridiculously out of touch, like Gwyneth Paltrow. But this is a thing where it's, it's, they're trying to be relatable and they're like, we're all friends. We love each other. I don't have a problem with any of these people. But instead they're relatable because like they just really hate their coworkers. And there's nothing more human than that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is beautiful. I... uh didn't quite understand Florence Pugh being cast in this new Dune film, but now I'm starting to be interested. 
I will. This is a lot of allegedly, but the internet definitely has too much time, and I feel like young Gen Z um, stan Twitter and Instagram definitely has too much time, but there were a lot of rumors about Florence Pugh feuding with Timothy Chalamet during the release of Little Women because they had followed each other on Instagram and they like tagged each other and stuff all the time. And then the movie came out and they never spoke publicly. They never mentioned each other like in any of their interviews. And then they had followed each, they had unfollowed each other on Instagram. So like, I'm not, I love Florence Pugh. I'm not going to talk bad about her, but I almost wonder like, you know, is she just like somebody who, if you work with her, like she just hates you. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing in all of this is, like, maybe she was being kind of difficult in some way, but it's, like, Olivia Wilde was lying <laughs> throughout the entire, like, literally since this movie started filming and Shia dropped out <laughs> and she started taking credit for that and painting herself as the hero. And, and I think Shia just literally had nothing to lose because I know his career isn't literally over because apparently he's filming another movie right now, but, like... He didn't really have a lot to lose by burning it down because he's like, most of Hollywood hates me anyway. I'm just going to... Also, the week that he burned it down, quote unquote, is the day is the same week that he was announced that he was cast in the new Francis Ford Coppola movie. So, I mean, you know, he's he's doing okay. Yeah. Um, No, I know he's doing okay, but I think it was like... But like... I don't want to. I don't want to have any more conversations with people about like their zodiac signs or like what their favorite song is. I want to know why do you think Florence Pugh hates Olivia Wilde? Mm-hmm. Is it because she was absentee on set because she was so busy canoodling with her alleged boyfriend Harry Styles? Is it because she allowed Shia LaBeouf's toxic energy all over set and then wouldn't stand up to Shia LaBeouf? Is it because she apparently filmed a uh, cameo for Ted Lasso season one uh, because Zach Braff, who was her boyfriend at the time? directed a bunch of episodes and maybe she's friends with Olivia Wilde's ex-husband Jason Sudeikis like you can really go full galaxy brain on this and I if you could give me these we haven't even mentioned the subpoena the (laughs) processor papers we haven't even mentioned oh my god yes no that's a we're going to talk about that when Apple TV is doing the press blitz for Ted Lasso season three um Yeah, no, but, we, could, um, we could do an emergency you, pod about this. Like this. You could do a full yeah. six degrees of separation. Like, tell me, like, Florence Pugh hates Olivia Wilde because she hates the OC. Like, I, I'll, I'm, I'm willing to hear your theory if you have a good one. I do wonder if the reason why Florence Pugh is so angry is because it sounds like it was a very unprofessional set. Oh, like yeah. somebody said that on Twitter. This isn't an original thought, but they're like, Olivia Wilde sounds like a terrible boss. Messy, mm. f***ing a subordinate, like lying about things, taking credit for things that she didn't do. It's just like, yeah, you wouldn't be happy working for someone like that if she was like your manager at the bank, let alone like mm-hmm. something that's hap- rolling out in the public eye. Also, we've all known people who've had like inner office affairs. Like imagine if your boss was a movie star and she was married to a very beloved TV star and she started cheating on that TV star with one fifth of One Direction. Like what is the what is the evolution of that? Like is it a secret? Is it a thing where like you can see them being inappropriate at work before it gets to a point where, you know, there's like a true um discretion, like, you know, or indiscretion? Like what is the process of that? And to me that's what makes this whole thing fascinating. I want leaks. I want more leaks from this than from the Mar-a-Lago raids. Like, I want to hear everything. So it's an obscure reference, but does anyone remember the Catherine Zeta-Jones, John Cusack movie, America's Sweethearts? Where yes. they star as movie stars who are like... And then Julia Roberts like, is like the, un- the underdog. 
the ugly sister, but it's essentially like a Meg, they're supposed to be like Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. And they're, they come together to make one final film together because they were in love on screen and off. They were husband and wife and they've gotten a divorce since the last film. And now they're coming together for their final film. And the director who is played by Christopher Walken, instead of releasing a movie, releases all of the behind-the-scenes footage of everything that's gone on on the making of the movie. If Olivia Wilde released that as Don't Worry Darling, like, we get to the cinema, we get in our seats, and it's just two hours of raw B-roll security camera footage of everything that went on on that set. Truly, I would turn to dust. Just to bring it back to the intro, isn't that basically the Michael Jordan Last Dance documentary? Is <laughs> just the behind-the-scenes stuff of him screaming at Scottie Pippen. I want to see Nick Kroll like being like, "Yeah, I was mad at Olivia Wilde because she did blah blah blah, and I took that personally." <laughs> and then Olivia Wilde is like looking at an iPad, watching Nick Kroll say that and like reacting yeah. to it. I just—that's right. what we need. That's what America needs. Shia LaBeouf going, you know, sometimes I just tried too hard. Yeah, I pray for you every night. I really do. Um, all right, well, Brian, I'm not even mad because your picks were all immaculate. I'm not either. Yeah. Thank you. I'm, I'm proud of myself. I wasn't worried, darling. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just had to have a Diet Coke just to like kind of bring myself down. Yeah, yeah. yeah just to calm down okay. after that. Yeah. No, you. I mentioned it that you were speeding up as you were talking as you got more into the the thing. I was afraid yeah. someone was going to interject. I was just going to be like, I got a power over them. You know, you got a good velocity. Um, okay, well, guys, this was a great episode. Great picks. Great picks. Who goes next? I, I forget. I feel like you know we took that break and then we came back with the uh all right let's see here last person to do a profile was me and then christine so it's you brian i'm so proud of me i can't wait uh carter years right 40 years 40 years i I was excited to you know get back into the carter administration i love i love a peanut farmer all right well we'll see you when we see you guys for our next medal recipient, you know, Stream Midnight by Taylor Swift, available October 21st, 2022. And uh, make sure you see Don't Worry Darling, which might be a great film or a piece of shit, but at least it's given us all of this. So much. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. Bye.